Hello, everyone. My name is Adam Kaufman, and I'm grateful you're joining us today on the Up To podcast. But before we get started, I want to tell you about a group I'm grateful for, and that is Town Hall, Cleveland's most popular restaurant, and one that I can tell you is the only place that my wife tells me she can eat every meal, breakfast, lunch, or dinner. Town Hall was the first all-non-GMO restaurant in the United States a few years ago, remains hugely popular today, and they're even expanding into Columbus, Ohio soon. I'm very selective about who we choose to partner with for this podcast, and with open arms, I embrace the idea of partnering with Bobby George and Town Hall. To learn more about what they're up to, about where they're going, about their music, about their food, and everything else, you can visit townhallohiocity.com. But we all know the benefit of having the internet, right? Being able to buy what you want online, being able to stream videos. And so I don't think most consumers should have to know about blockchain to benefit from blockchain. And that's part of our thesis is to make blockchain technologies connect to like the real world in a way that is usable and practical and doesn't require people to have to become true believers in order to like benefit from this new movement. Hi, I'm Adam Kaufman, and you're listening to the Up To Podcast. I've been fortunate for the past 25 years to be networking and serving, uh, working with the most successful, most influential leaders in America. And about eight years ago, we started Up To as a live event series that showcased leaders who I thought were as humble as they are successful. For me, the humility piece is very important as we identify these leaders that can hopefully inspire others. And over the years, I've interviewed trailblazers from the fields of medicine, from business, the military, nonprofits, politics, and more, really focusing our interviews on the non-business side of their lives, in addition to the business pursuits that we often already knew about but don't talk about too much. So time and again, attendees of Up2 asked us to expand the event so that more people could participate and benefit from the dialogue that was taking place. And that's why we started this podcast, and I'm so glad you're with us today. Mark Blinder earned his degree in politics from Princeton and rather quickly became a technologist. One of his earliest projects was sold to Adobe, which landed him in London, England, one of my favorite towns. And more recently, Mark's been in San Francisco, another super city as the co-founder of Icon, one of the hottest blockchain companies in Northern California. He's been participating in Burning Man for close to 10 years. He enjoys writing screenplays, and he continues to be a political activist. Mark's married, no children yet, and is the same authentic self, whether at a gritty hackathon or when dining at a swanky corner table in Union Square. He's frankly one of the most captivating individuals I've met in recent years. Hey Mark, thanks for coming all the way from San Francisco. Oh, it's a pleasure. Really glad to be here. You know, you were recently at Burning Man. I saw some interesting photos of you, uh, some fun photos on Facebook, and I, I know you were in London not too long ago. Icon has really taken off. I love watching the growth and just thrilled to have you with us. What have you been up to? Yeah, well, uh, <laughs> really glad to be here. Um, we've been working... I would say fairly relentlessly on the product front, partially because we're um, getting ready for our next round of fundraising. And so we've been just trying to roll out as many partnerships with real users and real use cases as we can. 
I usually don't start a conversation like this, but I want to get basic for a couple minutes because you're in a new category for a lot of us. Love it. Your white paper honestly helped me for the first time just vaguely understand blockchain, cryptocurrency, etc. So just a few basic questions. Try to dumb it down. I, I know you went to Princeton. It's hard for you to dumb things down, but can you at least like explain what is an API? So APIs are basically how computers talk to each other. It stands for Application Programming Interface, but really it's just a connection point between two computers, usually a server and a device or a server and a server. I always like to give the example of people's smartphones, right? Everyone's got a smartphone in their pocket probably right now. And at any time, it's probably connected to 20, 30, 40, 50 APIs. So an API is how... Facebook delivers your news feed. An API is how your iMessages arrive on your iPhone. An API is how Google Maps come into your device, right? And so it's really the foundational technology that allows all of the internet to connect to each other. Okay. You shared in this white paper that the API marketplace value is roughly equal to the value of all e-commerce, which was just staggering to me. Yeah, no, it, it really is amazing when you think about how much business is done via API these days, right? There's this phrase in Silicon Valley, of course, software is eating the world. And the more things become digitized, the more software eats the world, the more business happens on APIs. And I think there's a really interesting intersection with blockchain and cryptocurrency because as computers do more and more business together, it makes more and more sense for the computers to actually have their own money and their own identities and things like that. See, I love how you can explain these things in understandable terms. Can you also, again, short answers, explain what you mean by a decentralized economy? It's something I love talking about because it's so revolutionary. I think when you really start to think about it. And it's really fun to kind of see that look in people's eyes when they first, first start to really get it. So the way I like to explain it is that almost everything on the internet these days works around centralized databases where big companies, you know, like Google or Facebook or Amazon have everyone's data. All of our data is sort of owned in their servers under their control. And it is, of course, a valuable target for hacking, either to get the data or to change the data, right? It's the most important uh, sort of target for hackers all over the world. What blockchain does is it takes that whole model and turns it on its head. It's like the current internet turned inside out. So instead of a company owning a database that has all of our data, it's a decentralized system where anyone in the world can have a copy of the entire database. So if you today wanted to run a Bitcoin server or an Ethereum server or any other public blockchain, you can. And you would get the whole record of everything that's ever happened on Bitcoin or Ethereum or EOS or anyone else from day one to right now, all of it. None of it is secret. It's all publicly available and almost impossible to hack because there's so many eyes watching. Right? There's thousands and thousands and thousands of computers that have this record. It's an open book. And so it's very hard to then change that book. And it's impossible to steal the data because it's already public. I think one of the reasons that it's hard for some people to understand blockchain beyond the 
cryptocurrency kind of um, reputation that um, is out there already. There's a lot of blockchain that isn't cryptocurrency. We don't know how it affects us in our lives. You and I were just at a successful car dealer and he was talking about how he's gonna probably use blockchain technology for car titles or even when your car needs service. So what are some of the ways that basic consumers should begin to think about how this blockchain technology will help them in their daily lives? Well, it's it's interesting because it's one of the things that we do as a business is try and avoid basic consumers having to ever think about blockchain. So, like, if you use our— So I just asked a horrible question, basically. <laughs> no, I think it's a great question because I think some people are interested politically and some people are interested technically, right? What, what does it mean to not have centralized sort of monopolistic control of data, right? Like— you and I may talk about that politically and be really fascinated. A bunch of engineers may want to talk about what that means from the technology perspective and having fewer attack vectors and things like that. But most people don't care about this stuff. They want a system that works. Mm -hmm. And so for, I hope, in the long run, much like most people don't think about the difference between MongoDB or MySQL and most people don't even know what... I don't TC even know what that means. Right, exactly. Most people don't know what TCP IP is, right? Like that's how the internet works, but we all know the benefit of having the internet, right? Being able to buy what you want online, mm -hmm. being able to stream videos. And so I don't think most consumers should have to know about blockchain to benefit from blockchain. And that's part of our thesis is to make blockchain technologies connect to like the real world in a way that is usable and practical and doesn't require people to have to become true believers in order to like benefit from this new movement. I'm stubborn, so I'll stick with my bad question. Are there ways <laughs> that it. at least consumers should think about blockchain would affect certain things they do or places they go or items they buy or behaviors that they continue? What will happen in the long run, I hope, is people will come to see that blockchain is more secure and more fair for handling things on the internet. So one of the reasons you might actually put car titles on the blockchain in a way that you wouldn't just put them on the internet is it's not fair for any one car dealership or car company to own the system for tracking car titles on the internet. With a public blockchain that's open to everyone, that treats everyone the same, whether you are a startup that just got your first server or whether you've you know, sold $10 billion worth of cars already. That is a fair system. It's a shared good that everyone can use to track car titles. And it doesn't advantage one business over others, mm -hmm. but it advantages consumers because it's secure, it's trustworthy, and it's online. And so you don't have to go wait in line at the DMV when you sell your car to someone on Craigslist. You don't have to go change your title in person and like carry this you know, piece of paper with someone's signature on it that if you lose it is going to be this huge inconvenience. All this stuff can be done online with blockchain. This happened last week. Excuse me. We, we bought a used car for my 16-year-old son, and I had to go to four different government places to do four different things. Yeah. One step after the other. Like, I couldn't do it in one mobile app or anything in one website. It was very frustrating. Yeah, and especially in this day and age when we're used to doing things on the Internet so quickly and so easily, I think people won't 
they don't want to deal with these these kind of paper documents anymore. But at the same time, there are certain things that we want to be sort of fair and equal shared infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And so if it's going to be fair and equal shared infrastructure, blockchain lets that be digital and shared in a way that's new and different. So Icon may not be a consumer brand household name, but your work will result in easier activities for consumers or businesses. And is it an equalizing kind of platform too? Blockchain has this chance to break down all these barriers of people's prejudices because it's truly a global system where everyone's treated the same. And it does kind of put this digital layer between people's identities, Mm -hmm. which you know, I mean, sometimes can be tough socially to have like that digital interface between two human beings, but it can also really solve some social problems with how people judge each other and look at each other and things like that. Well, you've done a not surprisingly great job of uh, explaining some basics for us. So thank you uh, for that. We're going to go a little bit deeper now beyond just the technology. When I first met you, Mark, I just was amazed at the huge ideas that you had. And I'm sure it was just one of many meetings you had the day I met you, but I remember it succinctly because you told me that you hated the way Microsoft was ruining email and that you hated Outlook and you wanted to change email for everyone in the world. And this was when you were still running Emerge. And I was like, wow, this guy has huge ideas. Remember that? Yeah, definitely. And I still think your ideas there were were awesome, but Emerge didn't work, as sometimes is the case in startups. What did you learn from that experience with Emerge? It wasn't your first startup, but maybe the first one that didn't end the way you thought it might. So, you know, if you could reflect on learnings from that period in your life. I mean, the lesson I learned there more than anything was that you can have a great team and a great idea. Like we took a some of the best people from the previous company who'd had this huge successful run together and had a better thought through idea of what we wanted to do and like really a great handpicked team of brilliant people at Emerge and we still failed. And I think until you go through that process of having to lay off an entire company, you don't really believe it's a likely outcome. Mm -hmm. And only after you've done it, like at least if you're me, do you see like, yeah, no, this this happens and it happens more often than not and you've got to be ready for it and you have to protect people better. I think the biggest mistake we made was the size of our ambitions versus the amount of money we raised. Like if you're going to go after a Microsoft product, raise a lot of money. Don't raise a normal amount of money. And it's real trendy to talk about don't be afraid to fail, embrace failure. But I think there's some truth to that. And if I'm being completely authentic, I'm not great at that. I'm probably more cautious than I should be. Do you think emerges failure? May sound like a strong word. Do you think that has given you more tolerance to fail or has it made you more guarded in now icon? Well, I I think I, I mean I I would say I've never heard you so quiet before. Yeah, it? well, it's such an interesting question. I've known this is the one time not to be quiet. We're <laughs> taping a show. Yeah, well, no one's ever asked me that before, so I'm really thinking about it right now. And I think, for me, it it has made me more guarded because when you realize how real and palpable that outcome is, mm-hmm. it does make you really think twice about every decision. 
I'd like to think I'm older and wiser, and I'm still here back for more, so maybe I haven't learned any lessons starting a company all over again, but... That's a good thing, though. I mean, we're counting on entrepreneurs like you to take us to new heights. I think people who want to start a company or be have a startup in Cleveland, like, do it. Like, you should definitely do it. You have a real shot at success, but you should also be conscious of the fact that you're likely to fail, and... Yet it's probably not going to be the end of the world if I, that company doesn't succeed. I agree. I mean, I have to say I learned more in that two-year period than my four-year degree, and so... Isn't that I, interesting? It was a real win, I think, for the long run of my life, even though it wasn't, like, a financial win. Hello, up to listeners. Right now, I want to reiterate how selective we are about bringing partners into the up to podcast, and it's with a lot of enthusiasm... I want to tell you about Calfee, Halter, and Griswold, a full-service corporate law firm that's been giving wise legal counsel for nearly 120 years. They're uh, able to operate both internationally and in the U.S., based in Cleveland and with offices in Washington, D.C. and elsewhere. Calfee lawyers routinely represent a wide spectrum of private and public organizations, from emerging companies to Fortune 500 corporations, government entities, and nonprofits as well. Anyone in business knows how important it is to have wise legal counsel. So check them out at calfee.com, C-A-L-F-E-E.com to learn more. Thank you so much to Calfee and their team of lawyers and legal experts. And then after that, and about 18 months ago, I think it was, Eric Chen and I met up with you after you were attending a, a crypto conference or some sort of blockchain hackathon, but you just left like a big group of people and you were like so wired. You were so pumped up about this new technology and Icon was just, I think you were just calling it an API market at the time and now Icon. So the failure I saw from Emerge didn't squelch. I was interested in your answer because it didn't squelch your enthusiasm at all. You were as enthusiastic as ever that day, and you still are. Where do you think all this creativity comes from? You're one of the most creative people I've met. Is that something you think you're born with? Can creativity be taught? Were your parents creative? Where does that come from? Yeah, well, my mom is an artist and was okay. an artist when I was growing up. Uh, and my dad's a philosopher, and so I think I do get a lot from how I was raised. Right and brain. Stuff around the house, yeah. And... I think, yeah, I think humans are kind of infinitely creative from all walks of life. And whether you were raised that way or not, I think it's more about whether growing up you were told that creative ideas were good and like you should follow them and you should care about your own creative thoughts. I think so many people are just taught that your ideas are bad for whatever reason, right? If you're not Albert Einstein or you're not Bill Gates, you should like do what people tell you instead of having your own ideas and your own approach. I don't believe in that. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe occasionally there's some people born with that special thing, but I think certainly... It can be nurtured is what you're saying. It's not just nature. It can be nurtured. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I believe... I mean, this is really off the topic, but like I absolutely believe intelligence and creativity come from nurture, not nature. The next question I have, and it's not about Burning Man, but for me, Burning Man, I'm fearful to go. How do you deal with fear in your life? Because to me, you're always smiling. You're always happy. You're almost laughing in every sentence. Do you ever fear anything? 
Yeah, no, I, I mean, obviously, yeah, totally. It's not course. obvious to me. It doesn't seem like you do. Oh, well, that's funny. But yeah, I think all people fear things all the time. And for me, it's, I know from my own emotional reactions, it's usually that I'm afraid right before I start whatever it is. Like whether it's going on a podcast or giving a speech in front of a big crowd or founding a new company, whatever it is, it's like right before you do it is the scariest moment. And then once you've jumped or Mm -hmm. once you've started, like once you jumped off the high dive, then you're too busy to be afraid. (laughs) Yeah, like you told me this is your first podcast ever and you don't seem fearful at all. We're, We're in it and you're doing great. Yeah, no, I'm super excited. I I listen to podcasts on the way to work every day, and so it's actually like super fun to be to be here. Here today. you are, right? You have any mentors in your life? You and I were talking about some of my mentors earlier today. Do you have any mentors? Oh yeah, I mean, I look up to almost everyone I know in different ways, and the people I surround myself with at work and stuff like that. I mean, it's amazing, right? Like we have people even at our small little company. I literally look up to everyone we I work with in a different way. They are all amazing. Everyone there is better than me at something, usually at many, many things. And so, like, we have people on the team who, Serbi, one of our engineers, she came second in the world in this contest that the UN had thrown with, like, what to use blockchain for. And she had this idea to do, like, blockchain for refugees so that they could have identities and sort of like a banking system when they had no possessions left and no identity documents. It's like, who does that? Like, I think a lot of people have those ideas, but they don't go through with it. Mm -hmm. I think when you really stop to listen to who people are and what they do, it's incredible. Everybody has a story. I like to say a lot. Everybody has a story, and it's up to us to take the time to learn other people's stories. Do you think you're still very young, but do you think... There's anyone who looks up to you. Do you think about who your audience is? I don't know. It's 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 hard to imagine. Like I guess the people listening to this podcast won't know that I've like got bright pink and purple hair. Right I wasn't going to tell them, but I'm glad you did. But uh, it's it's hard to imagine like being a grown up and having people look up to me. I I don't feel that way on the inside, though. Of course, I'm sure a lot of people probably do, and I hope if. Anything, I hope the reason people look up to me would be because of how I treat other people in my life. And, like, and because, like, I, a lot of people, you know, I've been really lucky in my tech career and, like, made a lot more money than back when I was working in politics. But, like, a lot of people make money in this country, and I don't think most of them are, like, necessarily good people. That's for sure. I, I don't think people should be looked up to for that unless they are authentically good people. And so I hope— that people see that, and I think they do, and they see, like, this guy really cares about the people he's friends with, the people in his community, the people he grew up with. If anyone looks up to me, I hope that's why. (laughs) But I don't know. Now you're hitting on my topics. Like, there's so much more meaning in life beyond financial success. It's not about the stuff. I know so many affluent people who could buy everything possible, but they're broken inside. And I used to admire those people from afar. And then I'd get to know them and I'd develop a relationship. And at the end of the night or at the end of a month of knowing them, they'd reveal their true selves to me and they're, they're often not happy people. So it's, there's so much more to life than that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I really agree. And it's not that there's anything wrong with that, right? Like we live in a sin to make money. We live in a capitalist society. And especially if you can do good for the world while making money, that's a great thing. 
I do also think I really do believe in paying people like a, a reasonable living wage and all that kind of stuff. And it is one of the things that I have enjoyed about the blockchain space is with the huge rise in the value of Bitcoin and Ethereum and other cryptocurrencies. Like there's all these people who really never set out to make money that now have a huge amount of money and they do all sorts of weird, surprising, unusual things with them. A lot of that is really good for the world, but some is just quirky. And What's one unique. example I can see in your eyes that you, I feel like you're thinking of something in particular that somebody did something quirky or surprising once they had some newfound wealth? Well, yeah. So, I mean, there are people that are like trying to build these crypto communities where they're like building entirely new civilizations from the ground up with like bare land in Nevada or like bare land in like Puerto Rico where they're trying to build these communities that are sort of open to people from all over the world that rely on cryptocurrency. So have a completely different economic system and a somewhat different government system. And they're really these super creative ideas. Like who knows how that will turn out. Right. Uh, and no borders maybe. Yeah. It is one of those things. The world is always changing and you always need new approaches and it's exciting to suddenly give people who normally wouldn't have been given a shot a huge shot to do something different. I know you were in London recently. You've mentioned uh, a few different cities and countries, and we just talked about borders and not even about blockchain necessarily. But what is it about London? You live there. I'd love to live there. I'm fascinated by it. How is London different than, say, San Francisco or other American cities from your perspective having lived there and I know you go back for work from time to time yeah no I I try and go back there frequently I really I do love London I do love the culture in England there's something that's a little hard to put your finger on mm -hmm. but I think in America pretty much everything's for sale including like people's basic health and welfare and like physical safety and the sky is for sale with billboards and stuff like that. And in England, that's not true. I mean, obviously, it's a capitalist country. Money buys a lot there. But it's there is a bit of a different attitude. Like when you drive through the British countryside, there aren't billboards. Why? Because it ruins it for everyone. In the city, they don't even honk horns. Yeah. It's amazing how polite <laughs> the society is. It, it's yeah. so different than New York City in that regard. In uh, You know, and this is, I mean, getting probably more political than I should get on a podcast, but they had a horrible school shooting in Scotland in 96. And they looked at that and said, we have to do something. It had huge changes in gun policy, right? And haven't had any horrible school shootings since then. And the thing I like about England is even with the policies, whether I agree or disagree with them, like people care enough to like get together and do something. And they think, okay, a bunch of school children being shot to death is bad enough that this is like a national emergency when it happens once. I think in America, unless it's coming after people's pocketbooks, it's never a national emergency until it doesn't matter how many people are dying unless they're also going broke, right? And so just that attitude to me is a little hard sometimes. Anyway, so that is something I love over there, and I didn't appreciate that the world could be different. Having only lived here, like, I never lived in any other countries. I, I think people learn a certain 
perspective when you've actually lived in more different cultures. Certainly I did. When I moved to England, I was like, whoa, there are so many things I take for granted about civilization that are not human nature, that are American nature. And because I'd only lived in America, I thought it was human nature. I uh, go to a conference over in Chamonix, France every September. Most people have heard of the World Economic Forum in Davos. And the co-founder of that has a new conference in Chamonix. And we, our group of 20 Americans, were the minority at this conference. And I love going once a year because it gives you a lens, not the America first lens. It's not anti-American, but it's just not this American lens first viewpoint on a lot of things. And it's really refreshing. I don't know if I want to live in that environment constantly, but it helps me hone my own thinking and reevaluate my own thought processes and biases being in an environment like that. And I think that that's what happens in London, you know, every minute you're there. Absolutely. I mean, in Freud's civilization and its discontents, he says, like, no society can diagnose their own neuroses, mm. right? Because you're too much inside of it. And I think that is the only way to, like, look at a society is from that comparative vantage point of stepping outside of yeah, it. Yeah, being self-reflective more than probably most people tend to want to be, at least in the United States. Let me switch gears a little bit. You mentioned a few politic-type comments that I think— you know, in America, it's a bit of a taboo thing to mix business and politics. As a business owner, do you think much about how political you should or shouldn't be as you're trying to gain market share? Or do you think that's just part of who you are and you embrace all of it? Yeah, well, it's something actually Gretchen, our CMO, has just so brilliant about saying, hey, look, you've got to stand up who you are for who you are. You've got to stand up for our values as a company and then also our values as individuals. And I, I think it's been very liberating actually working with her hmm. to kind of be more open about that. She kind but, of gave you license to be yourself, it sounds like. Absolutely. But at the same time, I always try and treat everyone with respect and honesty. And I And part of that respect for me is like people we work with don't have to listen to me blab on and on about my mm -hmm. political views and they don't have to agree with them, right? Like if someone wants our technology for API security at their business, like they don't have to know what I think about, you know, UK, US relations <laughs> right. or gun policy or anything like that. And so I think as long as the most important thing is always being respectful and, and treating people fairly and with dignity. And then within that, if they want to hear my opinions, like, yeah, I'm going to be upfront yeah, and share, honest. Right. Yeah. But you don't lead with that necessarily. I, I wish more of the comedians or musicians that I pay to go see with my wife followed your thinking because I just, I want to go and be entertained. I want to go listen to Pearl Jam or laugh at a comedian. I can get my politics in other settings. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I don't entirely agree with you, but I do know what you mean and where you're coming from. Yeah. And, uh, it's tough in this day and age where there's so much polarization, and I think there's so many deep, deep, deep political issues being worked out that people who have a public voice are having trouble staying silent. They and, are, yeah, because they have a right to have the views, too, of course. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's a conflict—that's a complicated one. So you're— terrific to kind of like skate around the edges of this political differences we have. So why don't I bring it back to one more uh, question <laughs> just about um, you in general. And 
you're on your third company. Uh, have you already begun to think, and I know your coworkers don't want to think like this, but have you thought about like a post-icon life? You've gone public. You've monopolized your industry. You've achieved all the successes you wanted to achieve. What are you doing post-icon? Well, I definitely have not thought about that. How about spending one minute here? Well, first of all, we're not going to monopolize our industry. We're building shared infrastructure that okay. we won't own, the community will own. If I'm fortunate enough <laughs> for this company to not fail, even though most startups fail, if I'm fortunate enough that five years from now, Icon's still going strong and growing all the time. It will be. I would like to do things that are both good for the planet, like helping with stuff like solar power or things like that, but also things that are really good for bringing people together in the community in a non-digital way, okay. right? Like my w wife's in theater. Like we definitely have the dream of opening our own theater together. See, like at that's some a point. fun thought. That's what I was searching for. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that is something where I w I would like to dedicate some time to something like that, where it brings people together, face to face, uh, around mm -hmm. thought-provoking, artistic, wonderful things. And once this company is in good enough shape where I don't need to be doing it seven days a week. Well, Mark, you are so busy seven days a week. I know uh, the busy schedule that you keep. So I'm really grateful that you trusted us to do this today. It's your first podcast participation and you're making our show a, a much more creative, a much more diverse and better one by being a part of it. So thanks a lot. I love being here and thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. I'm Adam Kaufman, and I'd like to thank you for joining us on this Up To podcast. I encourage you to learn more about Mark and his impressive work at icon.com, and that's A-I-K-O-N.com. I sincerely hope that you enjoyed today's episode, and I encourage you to subscribe to our show wherever you listen to podcasts, or visit us at uptofoundation.org. A special thank you to the law firm of Calfee, Halter, and Griswold for their role in making this podcast possible. Visit them at calfee.com. And to our friends at Town Hall, you can learn more about their restaurants by visiting townhallohiocity.com. Up To is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. A special thanks to producer Bridget Coyne, account manager Connor Standish, and audio engineers Eric Coltnow and Dave Douglas. I'm your host, Adam Kaufman. Thank you for listening to the Up To Podcast.